This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we examine how the pandemic has shaped and changed the real estate industry. I'm Miriam Hall, I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today, I'm speaking with our reporter, Kelsey Neubauer, who also covers the city. When the pandemic forced the country to retreat to our homes, the world of e-commerce experienced an unprecedented boom. But soon, workers who make these online orders happen started reporting cases of the virus and complaining that their employers were not doing what they should to keep them safe. And while these cases were emerging, there was a rise in protest and worker walkouts at logistics facilities across the country. This week, we published a piece looking at where these outbreaks are emerging, how the regulatory body has handled them, and how the blowback could result in a new labour movement in the United States. Kelsey co-wrote the piece. She says there's been scores of complaints lodged with OSHA about conditions at warehouses and distribution centres. But it's not just through these complaints that workers are voicing their concerns. This one survey of logistic workers by the workforce management software company, Quineyx, and uh, half of the people who answered the survey said their employer was not doing enough to keep them safe. And 61% considered leaving their jobs because of those concerns. Only 6% of these logistics workers said they were granted paid sick time. And 29% thought they would be fired if they took off more than one consecutive sick day. And so many of them felt that they had to choose what we heard People felt they had to choose between going to work every day and risking their lives, in some cases, and their livelihood. Even with coronavirus, uh, this survey said that 14% of logistic workers said they would come to work sick. So has OSHA actually done anything about this so far? I mean, have places been shut down? Are people being disciplined? So out of the 171 reports that were made to OSHA, there have, they have only opened eight inspections and three of those cases were closed with no violations found and five remain opened. And when we asked OSHA which companies they had looked at, they wouldn't identify which ones. So OSHA, I mean, on, on a larger, more macro scale, OSHA has been accused of not enforcing or investigating COVID-related complaints thoroughly enough or uh, as frequently enough as they should. This has been across industries, not just the warehousing industry, but the meatpacking industries, but of course, warehouse work as well. So this has been a critique through this process that these issues have not been addressed by the federal entity that is supposed to be looking at these. So they're getting a lot of heat for that, not just in logistics, but across the board. Mainly, I mean, there was a, a... a story in the Washington Post recently that focused specifically on the meatpacking industry and how, how they had not addressed concerns and complaints there. Over the course of the reporting of this, I mean, you were putting together this piece over several months and you read through a lot of these complaints. What stood out to you? Some of our reporting came from those complaints and some of it came from an analysis of local reporting. So we could really kind of understand the breadth of what was happening across the country, not just from people who filed complaints. And in both of those instances, there had been a sense of fear throughout. And the OSHA complaints specifically, there were direct requests for help sometimes. There was one statement that 
uh, hit us in our in our reporting. It's this quote: "We are scared." There was these complaints that you know in Indiana there was complaints alleged vomiting and shortness of breath from ten employees, saying this uh, person who complained said that the spread was rampant and the workers were not able to socially distance. Another report said that uh, their supervisor had told a sick employee not to reveal the fact that they were sick. And another plant uh, said that there were 30 people in the plant that had had the virus and there was really no way to contain it. A lot of, uh, of pathos involved, but also a lot of reported specific instances of workers in these warehouses not being able to socially distance, not having access to information about who in the warehouse had coronavirus, and just a general sense of not, that these, these warehouses were not, were not safe enough. It's not just about the cases and the outbreaks that there's been a, this enormous amount of reporting and enormous amount of examination of. A lot of time and airtime has been given to addressing the strikes. We're seeing incredible numbers of strikes at these warehouses. At the same time, an incredible amount of employment happening. So they, they have been uh, hiring a bunch and um, in, in record numbers, you know, and then you have this this trend of, of strikes and of worker walkouts, I mean, across the country. Um, and in some cases, these walkouts that were held really did pressure, put pressure on the company to make their safety policy stronger. These were in, you know, Chicago, cities in uh, Minnesota, um, Staten Island, in in New York City, just all over the country, really workers coming together and kind of collectively working towards putting pressure on their employer to improve working conditions and um, making noise in a way that has been, that has not been documented and reported on in in terms of logistic e-commerce warehouses before. We've really never seen anything like it. In this particular sector, yeah. A lot of it centered around one particular company, Amazon. Mm-hmm. What's Amazon said to you over the course of your reporting in this story? Um, they are notoriously quiet and notoriously media shy. Well, Amazon, we requested a couple of times, we requested an interview with them. They declined to respond to those interview requests. However, they did provide a lot of detailed answers to our questions regarding what they are doing and how they are making, how they say they are making their warehouses safe for their workers. They went into detail about their extended paid and unpaid leave, some of which has been drawn back despite the fact that coronavirus is still raging in many parts of the country. But they basically gave us a rundown of their, um, and these answers of their safety procedures and policies, who people could contact if they have issues and within the company they they told us about you know if someone does have it does come down with COVID-19 or you know has a coronavirus related issues such as childcare, they said they would work with um, those individuals to to get that paid or unpaid time off so that's basically how they responded to a lot of of our questions regarding what was going on around the country and kind of their procedures. Geographically, where are these outbreaks? Because through your reporting, you were able to really establish between where the cases are going up and where we are seeing some of the most significant industrial lease volume. 
Yeah, so just for context, in the first half of 2020, e-commerce companies um, leased more than 56 million square feet of warehouse space across the U.S., and uh, that's compared to the 9 million square feet in all of 2019. So the first half of the year, 56 million. Last year, for the whole year, it been uh, 9 million. So a huge, enormous uptick in, in leasing volume. And a lot of those places, I mean, these warehouse, these e-commerce, uh, 3PL warehouses, they, because of the business model, need to be located in near high-density urban cores, and particularly middle-class, upper-middle-class urban cores. That's the way their business model is, so that is where they are picking up this, this space. Despite like the significant community spread in many of the country's industrial hotbeds, like Atlanta, South Florida, Texas, these e-commerce companies are expanding because of the customers that they serve. And so there is this inherent link between population density and uh, community spread, as well as where these warehouses are located. And I would add, too, that typically what we found through our reporting was those that work in these warehouses often tend to be those that have been most vulnerable to the virus. Um, And those tend to be working class people of color who have disproportionately been affected by the coronavirus so it's like this confluence of all these things happening at once yeah this is where they need to be because this is where the customer base is at the same time that's where the major case rises are but the leasing is continuing without really a clear idea of how people are going to be kept safe particular protocols particular rules yeah and beyond companies saying um that they are putting safety measures in place um there's, there's really, there's nothing. A really fascinating part of the article, which you did go into a lot of depth and detail on, is the comparison between this moment that we're in right now versus 1919, the last mm-hmm. time we saw a pandemic of this magnitude. And I believe one historian said to you that the similarities are actually uncanny. We, throughout our reporting, uh, we have been talking to experts who kept comparing um, a certain part of history um, to, to the moment we're in now in terms of the surge in labor activity. Um, and we kind of dug into that and tried to understand what factors were involved in bulk of these cases. And so similar to the pandemic of, of 1918, 1919, you know, wealth inequality was on the rise. So in this case, I mean, we're, I think we're probably more familiar with with uh, what's been going on recently in terms of health, wealth inequality. But, uh, you know, Amazon uh, CEO Jeff Bezos' net worth has grown $62 billion since April, while while so many workers are saying that they do not feel safe in these warehouses. In the decades leading up to to today, the top, I mean, right now, the top 1% of this country owns, controls 29%, of the nation's wealth, and that was uh, in 2016, according to the survey of consumer finance. And the top 0.1% owns about 11% of the country's wealth in 2014. So you see there's just a a wealth inequality there, and that was there in the years leading up to 1918, 1919 as well. And there you saw some of the largest surges in labor organizing 
1919, one out of every five workers had been on strike. And these were strikes like the Great Steel Strike of 1919, the General Strike in Seattle, the coal miner strike. So all of these huge industries were having these, these surges. And by many, I've read a lot about this and heard a lot about this, by many standards, and this is an art debate within the historical community too, but by many standards, the, the direct result of these strikes was not successful. But it did set the stage for uh, the next few decades, um, which would, would bring in sweeping labor reforms and total reconstruction of labor laws in this country. And as labor historians have said, really bring these laws into the 20th century in a way that they were not before. Similarly, labor historians have said that right now we're on the brink of a similar period where these workers are, what they're ultimately pushing for is a movement towards labor laws that are in line with a 21st century economy. And so there's a lot of parallels in the way that these labor strikes were formed and the moment in, in history and what they, the backdrop that they sit in front of. Yeah, some of the, the, the labor laws that we live with today were created in the decades after those strikes. Yeah. And so what kind of, I mean, when you spoke to these labor experts and you spoke to these historians, what did they think for how things are moving forward now? Do they think that the strikes that we are seeing, that the unrest that we are seeing, um, the, the kind of rage from these workers that we are seeing now is going to have the same long-lasting impact than we saw post-1919 from those strikes? Yeah, I think that the labour historians and, and experts that we spoke to were kind of split on that. You know, whether or not this is a labour blip, a blip in surge in labour activity, whether it's more of a long-term thing that that the country is going to to see in the decades, the years and decades to come, they were very split on whether or not that was that was the case. And some said this is the beginning of a new era, and others said that this is just pandemic-induced uh, surging labor or, organization. Um, but another interesting thing that one labor historian said to me. She said, you know, we're going to keep having these issues that are going to trigger this surge. And she said, there are going to be more, because of climate change, there are going to be more natural disasters. There are going to be more pandemics. This is not the last pandemic. And she linked that back up to her argument regarding this push towards creating a labor economy that matched the 21st century. Kelsey Neubauer is a BizNow reporter in New York City. You can read her story that she co-wrote with our Atlanta reporter, Jared Shank, examining this organised labour resurgence in the e-commerce industry at biznow.com. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.